Ready, guys? Amen. If you want to look at the handout, it's the dangers of money. Handout. We um we want to get want to try to. We're talking every sermon is directed at you. Ne- the next two talks will try to make some application to pride and humility to specific areas of our life, namely now money and uh, this evening on our words. I've owned a chainsaw for about 30 years, and in my 30 years of owning a chainsaw, I have never put that chainsaw into the hand of a child. And you have never seen an adult start up a chainsaw and put it into the hands of a three-year-old. You have never seen that. You probably never will because it would be so utterly foolish. It doesn't take a PhD to realize that you wouldn't put uh, a powerful, dangerous tool into the hands of someone who didn't know how to use it safely. The more powerful the tool, the more the danger, right? Your money is a chainsaw. It is very, very dangerous stuff. Wielded well in the hands of wisdom, it can cut paths to great glory. But used in the hand of a fool, it brings much harm. Proverbs gives us at least four tests, four tests, to see if you understand how to wisely handle this gift called wealth. Test number one comes right out of Proverbs 3. In Proverbs 3, verse 13, we're promised how blessed is the man who finds wisdom. You want blessing? Seek first wisdom. And the man who gains understanding. For its profit is better than the profit of silver, and its gain than fine gold. She is, now wisdom has become personified. She becomes a very attractive lady, as it were, someone we're supposed to desire. Lady wisdom is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. She she prefigures the glory of Jesus. So we're going to see that this first test is, out of whose hand will you take your wealth? Out of whose hand? Will you take it out of your own hand or out of the hand of Lady Wisdom? Notice that nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. There it is. The fool takes his money out of his own hand and by implication uses it according to his own desires. The wise man says... I am not skilled enough on my own to take money out of my own hand. I must take it from Lady Wisdom's hand, from Jesus' hand. And so the promise here is what? That as you take your money, your wealth, you assess it from God's perspective. You take it from Jesus' hand, not your own, on his terms, not your own. There is a promise of happiness. Verse 17, her ways are pleasant ways. All her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Happy are all who hold her fast. So the first, the first question is, do I want wisdom more than I want wealth? Do I value, 
lady listen says, nothing you desire compares with me. Nothing. The, the greatest amount of wealth in the world doesn't compare to the value of knowing Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? And secondly, will you take wisdom from her hand? She says, here it is. She promises happiness. That's the very thing you want. And the Bible warns that if you take it out of your own, it will bring destruction. That's the very thing you want to avoid. Okay? First test. Second test. Are you aware of money's power? Now, it doesn't take long to find out the power of a chainsaw. You can cut down trees. You can cut things in an instant. Chainsaws are very powerful. So is the stuff you have in your back pocket. Proverbs 28.11, the rich man is wise in his own eyes. That verse says that money has power and potential to do something to our perspective. Okay? Let me give you a couple of subcategories to flesh out to see if you're aware of the power of money in your life. Uh, first question, are you resisting the fact that I'm talking about money? Or are you deeply grateful that you are going to receive God's, not because of me, but because of God's word, you're deeply grateful that you're going to get safe handling instructions on something so dangerous. You know, in all my ministerial career, I can't remember anyone who has come to me and confessed the sin of greed. I have a lot of other sins confessed to me. I can't remember anyone who's come and said, I'm really struggling with greed. Help me. The fool says, no one has a right to tell me what to do with my money. That is putting a chainsaw in the hand of a teacher. Second question in this regard. Are you in a hurry to obtain wealth? Proverbs 28. A faithful man will abound with blessings. That's what we want. What does faithfulness look like? But he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. A man with an evil eye hastens after wealth and does not know that what will come upon him. Are you in a hurry to get rich? Are you content with your station in life? Or are you in uh, debt up to your eyeballs, trying to live beyond the means God has allotted to you? If God has given you this much income, it is sin to try to live on more than that. It is sin. And the Bible warns that the borrower is the lender's slave. And we know, hopefully you're not this, but we know people who have incurred incredible pain in their lives and in their marriages by going into serious debt, living beyond their means. Again, when I do premarriage counseling, when we talk about money, I say make a budget. You have this much coming in. This much goes to the Lord. You can save this much. Do not spend more than that. Don't live beyond your means. That's American consumerism and capitalism. Want you to do that. It is sin to do that. That's a test. Another test. Is sorrow in your wealth? Another indicator if you understand the power of money. Is there sorrow in your wealth? Proverbs 10.22. It is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. So if you're rich, and of course that's a relative term, all of us by the world standards are rich. Okay. Don't, don't, Forget that. If you're rich, God blessed you with it. And this verse says, he adds no sorrow to it. So, so here's, here's an indicator. Do I have wealth accompanied by sorrow? Well, what kind of sorrow? He isn't explicit, but let's list a couple that we tend to run into. 
Sorrow that you, that you don't have more money. Sorrow that you might lose it. Sorrow relationally incurred because people around you realize you love money more than them. Sorrow experienced when you purchased something thinking it was going to make you happy and afterwards you still felt empty. Okay? There's different qualities of sorrow that attend wealth. This verse is saying that though God delights to give us wealth, if you have wealth and there's sorrow accompanying it, you're not taking it out of Lady Wisdom's hand. You're taking it out of your own. God doesn't give sorrow in the way he gives wealth. That means we're taking it in a way we're not meant to. We're, ta- we're using it selfishly. Another subcategory, do you understand the power of money? Is money a false security? Proverbs 11:28. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. We want to flourish. We want to be healthy like green leaves. Nobody wants to fall. Money has power to make you fall. What is the operative word in this sentence that leads to falling because of money? Trusting it. Trusting it. Money has a way of saying, look, I can make you independent. I can make you autonomous. I give you the ability to make choices and to... Ah! Sorry, guys. Is it all right? Can we leave? What? Yeah. Um, Money creates security and it gives you power. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. The problem is, the more you have, the harder it is to give up. Remember a man Jesus met? He was very wealthy. Go and sell all that you possess, give it to the poor, and come follow me. He walked away sad because he was very wealthy. His, he didn't own his possessions. They possessed him. He couldn't give them up for the Lord of life. Money is very powerful as something that we want to trust. Now, you realize money is not the problem here. Our hearts are the problem. Our hearts are always looking for something to lean on. Okay? We love to trust the tangible. If, if money was the problem, the Bible, would, the Bible would instruct you to seek poverty, and it does not. If money was the problem, the Bible wouldn't say things like this. It is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. The generous man will be prosperous. Great wealth is in the house of the righteous. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Do you see the picture? If you leave an inheritance to your grandchildren, that means you have enough for you and your wife, your kids, and their kids. These are promises of God's prosperity and blessing. Okay? Money isn't the problem. Our hearts are the problem. How do you know, again, that your heart is, is, is taking money from the wrong hand. It's that when your lust for money is making you single-minded, I will get it at all costs, I will keep it at all costs, and I will spend it exactly as I want to. Single-mindedness. Hebrews 13 warns, make sure your character is free from the love of money. It's writing to Christians. Christians aren't susceptible to the love of money. Why not? The more we live in affluent culture, the more dangerous it is. 1 Timothy 6, 9. Very strong warning. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root 
of all sorts of evil. Again, the more you have, the more you're tempted to love it. One extremely wealthy man was asked, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little more. That's why Proverbs says money makes itself wings and flies away. It is elusive. There's never enough. Uh, One more subcategory here. Wealth tempts the heart to escape reality. Proverbs 18.11. What a picture. A rich man's wealth is his strong city like a high tower in his imagination. So there's, a, there, there's something happens to the mind because of wealth. Wealth ha- has a power to create a sense in us that we are better off than we really are. The more wealth you have, the foggier God's demands become. Objectively, from a human perspective, who are the hardest people on earth to convert? The wealthy. Jesus said so. The kingdom of God is nearer to the poor. And he didn't mean poverty of spirit there. He meant the poor. Because they can't kid themselves about their deepest spiritual needs. Wealth insulates you from that. It gives you a sense that you're better off than you really are. Um, Jesus warned in Luke 24 how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath. Okay, those are some those are some subcategories that help you flesh out whether you are truly aware of the power of wealth. Okay? Third test. How do you pray about your wealth? Not do you pray about it. That is assumed biblically. How do you pray about it? We meet a man in Proverbs 30 who offered a very helpful prayer about his wealth. Here's what he says in Proverbs 37 through 9. Two things I ask of you. Don't refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. That's the first request. And give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. It is not natural for us to pray like this. If I was to say to you, God has just given me authority that you men can choose one of two stations in life. All of you men who, would be, who are going to be promised unspeakable riches and wealth from God, come over here. And all of you men who would rather choose a life of moderate income, come over here. Where would you guys go? I would go there. And you would too. We do not naturally incline ourselves this way. This is the prayer of a man who found something, we'll unpack it in a second, who realized I am infinitely safer here. That is a chainsaw in the hand of a three-year-old. Okay? This person has not too high an estimation of his ability to handle the dangers of wealth. We want to say, I'm the exception, Lord. Of course I can make it over here. I'm different than the rest of everyone else. That would really be your pride speaking, not your humility. Who prays this way? The wise man. Wisdom says, since I did not make the world, 
I did not set up the structures that make life work, and God did, I must defer to him to move in concert with those structures. That's what the wise man says. That's why he prays this way. Secondly, the person who prays this way knows themselves well. They are skeptical of their own motives. They know their heart can be deceived by wealth. They see no reason. Notice the tone of desperation. Don't refuse me. They see no reason to exempt themselves from human proclivity to be deceived by wealth. There's, There's a desperation here. That's the kind of person that prays this way. What are the two requests? Two simple words. Keep and give. Each of these gets elaboration in this prayer. Okay? Keep deals with the heart, especially the motives. Give deals with circumstances, which are, of course, unavoidable. Unavoidable. Here's the first request. Keep deception and lies far from me. That's the prayer of a humble man. He realizes that his strengths are too weak for him, his weaknesses are too strong for him, and that there are certain lies and deceptions about money that are really too strong for him. They're going to get the better of him. Uh, Bruce Walke says that this this idea of deception and lies really can be uh, reduced to this. Deception that takes the form of a verbal lie. So as relates money and wealth and riches in your life, money has a way of coming at you with propositions, with ideas that might look true on the surface, but without close biblical wise scrutiny will ultimately prove to be false and therefore harmful. Again, you take money out of your own hand, perilous, danger. Take it out of Christ's hand, safety, life, peace, wisdom, grace, paths of righteousness. How do you recognize a lie about money from a, from a truth about money? How do, you, how do you tell that? How do you tell the difference? Only in God's Word. And a thorough working of God's Word. See, you on Monday, Glenn, you could take us to passages that say we really should be poor. And on Tuesday, you could take us to passages that say God wants you rich. And what's the reality? The reality is, it's all about your heart's attitude. And living providentially in the station in life God has called you to with gratitude and with generosity. So what are the kinds of lies that you and I are tempted to believe about money? You ever believed, you ever thought this one? Well, if I'm poor, I won't worry about money. The reality is the rich and poor the, and everybody in between worries about money. How about this one? God wants me rich. If you've never heard that one, you haven't been tunnel surfing and hit the televangelists. I'll be happy and content with more money. You know, I, I have to confess to you, when, when Trinity was meeting at Jack Jewett School in, in 1980, my drive home from church took me down, I forget the name of the road, down to Barracks Road, I think, and a dead end in the Barracks Road, and ahead of, at every Sunday coming home from church, I saw the sweeping lawn up to this lovely home. And every Sunday, I coveted that. I was 22, years old, 22 24 years old at the time, come to that stoplight, I had time to look at it and go, I didn't know my heart well, did I? Didn't know my heart at all. Um, These lies are so seductive that without the word of God, we are prone to get it wrong. So, keep. Keep lies and deception far from me. Is that, when, when, when you get your paycheck and you put it in the bank, is that one of the prayers you utter? 
don't let lies about my wealth, deceptions about my wealth, get the better of me. Okay, here's the next request. Give. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. Okay? We here echoed in give the prayer of Jesus. Give us this day our daily bread. Bread in that prayer and food in this prayer is a literary device called synecdoche. It simply means parts of the whole. When it talks about food, when it talks about bread, that's just a bigger category of all of my earthly needs. Shelter, clothing, health, food, safety. It is right to ask God for those things. Because our Father takes delight, as you do as fathers, in giving those things to your children. But what the Lord wants to create in us as we receive those is the grace of contentment. As Paul says, if we have food and shelter, with these we, sh we shall be content. What is contentment? It's wanting what you have and not wanting what you don't have. Boy, that's awfully simple. It's wanting the car you're driving and not wanting the new car. Now, I, I've been through that with my wife. There's been times when, I, you know, the Sunday paper comes in. And I've been suckered by all that. Man, I got bait, hook, hook, bait, bait, and sinker. I swallowed it. And, honey, let's go get that new. And she's like, we can't afford it. End of discussion. Thank God for the voice of reason in my wife. Thank God. Because there's times over things I would be prone to be imprudent. And so I'm so grateful. Do you have that kind of relationship with your spouse if you're married where there's, a, there's an ebb and flow, there's an equilibrium where she might be strong in areas of finance that, and you in humility need to say, you're right on that. And then there's times you need, you need to lead and be strong and say, in this area, we need to be there. Find that place with your spouse so that you're working together in, in, in a wonderful way. What are the reasons, this guy who prays this, what are the reasons he gives for contentment as the only safe place for his heart. Well, he gives two extremes. Here are the reasons. I don't want poverty. I don't want riches. Why don't I don't want poverty? Because in a state of poverty, my pride may well up, and in self-justification, I may go out of desperation and steal to get my needs met. And he says that is tantamount to profaning the name of God. In other words, for him, for the humble man, it is better to be hungry than to profane God's name. And profane, profaning God's name would... <laughs> now, there's the wise man right there. <laughs> if I steal, I'm saying my God doesn't meet my needs. I'm saying my God's law isn't a good law. It can be broken. Don't give me poverty. Don't give me riches. Are you... So sure about that, Lord? Uh, you could trust me with those riches. I'm the exception. <laughs> no, what's his reason? Lest I be full and deny you. Again, this idea we've seen. The more you have, the cloudier and the foggier and the distance God is. Right? The more you have. In a state of full. Remember how Moses does this with Israel in Deuteronomy? He warns them. God is bringing you into a good land. It's full of farms, milk, honey, cattle, cities you didn't build, gardens you didn't plant. Man, this is going to be the best prosperity you ever saw. Now this, if I'm a prosperity preacher, I go to Deuteronomy and preach this. In the next breath, though, Moses says, but watch out. Because as soon as you get there, you're going to get proud in heart and think you did this. So the moment you forget who gave you what you have, 
you're in danger. You're putting a chainsaw in the hand of a two-year-old. Money is a lot like medicine. You need to read the little side of the bottle and know what the side effects are. Know what the side effects are. Okay, so that's his prayer. The prayer of a wise man. Not too much. Not too little. Give me what I need for the glory of God. That's his greatest concern. Finances to the glory of God. So let's sum it up this way. Work hard. Work hard. Work hard. Yes. Save money. Yes. Have enough for your grandchildren. Yes. That's why I loathe that bumper sticker you see on these big RVs. We are spending our, our children's inheritance. I loathe that bumper sticker. It's just so unbiblical. Have you ever seen that bumper sticker on the big RVs? We're spending our children's inheritance. Boy, that displeases the heart of God. Ever vigilant over your wealth, deceptive power? Yes. Last test. See, the Proverbs gives us tests to see. Do we really understand that money is like a chainsaw? Do we know how powerful it is? Here's the last test. Do you delight in the glory of money well used? Do you delight in it? We have no trouble delighting in the glory of money well spent. Okay. How about delighting in the glory of money well used? Let me give you a couple tests to see, to flesh this out. Number one, examine your generosity. There is ultimately only one way to know whether or not your money owns you. And what is it? You only know your money owns you, or it doesn't, by what? By your generosity, by your ability to part with it. Period. There's no other test. It's the safest. It's the surest test. Fail proof. If you're pregnant, the thing turns yellow. If your money owns you, you can't part with it. If you can part with it in generosity, you own it. Now be careful. The Bible doesn't do accounting the way we might think. We think it's measured by our generosity, by how much we give, not according to the Bible. The Bible says your generosity is measured by how much you give up, not how much you give. If, we're, if some of you are in a category of making $120,000 a year and all you do is tithe, that's pathetic, friends. That's pathetic giving. God should get much more than $12,000. You don't need $98,000 to live in this culture, do you? You should be giving much more than that. Okay. So you can't, you can't measure your giving by how much you give. Oh, I give 10000 a year, and most people only give 5000 a year. It's how much you give up. There's a situation in David's life where he had to make an offering to God, and, there's a, and he needed a couple of sheep, and a man says, I'll give them to you. Probably because, hey, this is cool. It's the king. I can give, I can give King David sheep, and he's going to sacrifice it. That man took pleasure in that. David said, David said, no. I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will offer, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. Who in the New Testament, in the Gospels, gave the most money? The widow's mite. Well, how much was it? Three cents? Four cents? It was everything she had. And Jesus saw the Pharisees coming. They were putting in millions of dollars. And Jesus said, she put in more than them. She gave out of her poverty, they out of their surplus. So if you don't feel it in your giving, you're not giving yet. Now if your heart goes, ugh, then you're not taking your money out of wisdom's hand. You're still taking out of your home. Should it not be our heart's delight to find what the Macedonian believers found, 2 Corinthians 8, in the great ordeal of affliction, 
their abundance of joy, there it is, joy, and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability. And I don't think this becomes normative for all Christian giving. I don't think the Bible says you have to give beyond your ability. I don't think it does. These guys did. I think the Bible prescribes enormous generosity. But here's a test case for people. Paul says they gave of their own accord, begging us with a much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. You see the picture here? They heard about the famine in Jerusalem. You know what they did? They went up to Paul and they said, We want to give! Please! I can imagine Paul going, You guys are poor. You hardly have enough to live on. Come on! They're begging him in spite of that entreaty for the privilege of giving. Why? Well, we'll find out in a minute. Okay? Examine your generosity. Second thing, to show you understand the glory of money well used. You believe your money is a window for the world to see God. And that's Proverbs 3.9. Honor the Lord from your wealth, from the first fruits of your produce. And there's a promise there. And your vats will overflow with new wine. Not a good verse for the Baptist, but that's another question for another day. <laughs> oh, yes. It's non-alcoholic wine. Gracious. How does our money, is our money a window for the world to see God? When Joe Israel is instructed to bring from the first fruits of his produce, he is saying, my God has supplied this, and it is my joy and privilege to give back to my God a simple portion of what he has given me. I'm revealing that God is the owner of all things. You know what? Your neighbors probably don't know what you give, but by looking at what you drive and some of the things you have and some of the things, ways you spend your money, you're making some kind of statement. You are to your children. You're making statements to your children about what you really value and whose kingdom you want to build. Well-used money, secondly, builds faith. If I bring the first fruits of my produce, what is implicit in that? I'm trusting that the rest of the harvest is going to be there for me and my family and my business. Because I'm giving the first fruits of my produce, the best fruits, right? That builds faith. Strong giving builds faith. It doesn't take a lot of faith to just write a check and say, well, you know, okay, now we can live on the rest and I'm never going to feel any tension in my finances. That doesn't build faith. It doesn't take any faith to just write a check. Let's suppose you can tithe on $100,000 or you can... It doesn't take a lot of faith because you know you have everything you need for the rest of your... Uh, your goods. How many of you know experientially the truth you cannot outgive God? How many of you know that? I mean, experientially. You you have you know that experientially. Uh, you cannot outgive God. Any of you know that? Do you know that? I'm going to tell you a story from my own life, and I, I don't tell it to bring any attention to me because it's to God be the praise. Here's where I learned that. I did a uh, when I was living in Texas. I was flown to Midland for a funeral of, of an individual. And the guy gave me a, a fairly large honorarium for that. I, I considered large, $400. And I didn't need that to buy, to put food on the table. My first thought was new golf clubs. And I believe the Lord brought into my mind, you need to give that away. So I went, went home. There was a need in the church. I gave it away, you know, anonymously, left hand, not knowing what the right is doing. 
Within about a month, I had actually conducted, uh, well, I did another funeral, and during that funeral, uh, some lady slipped two $100 bills in my pocket, and somebody else wrote me a check for $200 as a thank you. That's highly unusual. For Usually, I don't get anything for funerals. So all of a sudden, I gave the first 400 away, and a month later, 400 had returned to me. So I was not so stupid that I didn't make the connection there. I said, okay, Lord, let's give that away too. Found a need and gave that away. $800, right? Some time passes. My wife's driving to school. The car breaks down. Well, it broke down a uh, hundred yards, a whole pitching wedge, from a garage. Through <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how you measure stuff. Car breaks down hundred yards from a garage I used to use when I lived in that part of town, but I moved from that part of town, and, and I would just never go to that garage anymore. It wasn't convenient. Car breaks down there. You know, phone call. Okay, they take it in. Guy calls me. I won't tell you what I was doing when he called me. You know. <laughs> it was <laughs> terrible. He says, look, it's the car's out of warranty. It's over the 36,000 miles. But I know the guy at the Chevy dealership, not the one where we got the car. I know the guy at the Chevy dealership, he's agreed to fix it for nothing, as if, as if it's under warranty. That would not have happened if the car hadn't broken down right there. So I'm driving a couple weeks later. It's all fixed. I'm driving a couple weeks later. I'll never forget where I was, going up over this bridge over these railroad tracks, and I go, guess how much the bill was to get the car fixed? $800. You cannot get by. God is a careful accountant. That is not the reason to give. You give for the glory of God. But that builds my faith. That builds my faith. I'm dull and slow of heart to believe, but when God is that tangible, doing accounting so carefully, it's like, oh, God, you're there. You notice. You're good. I, I, you know, Malachi, God says, test me in this. It's the only thing I know in the Bible where God says, you can put me to the test. Now, he might be testing you in things. There's one area God will put you, you can put God to the test. See if I will not open the storehouses of heaven and bless you. Just to see you work, God. Okay, I'll test you and give you. Will you do that? The humble heart says yes. The proud heart says, mm, I'm not so sure. Last point. Money well used reveals the glory of Jesus Christ. It reveals the glory of Jesus Christ. When you and I give sacrificially, it points us to God's glory. Because Christ's life was about sacrifice Would that we gave in proportion to the gift we have received in Christ. Because Jesus Christ from all eternity lived in the glory of the riches as the king of the universe. And in space and time, he came down into this world and lived a life of economic poverty. He had nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was supported in his ministry by a group of women. I mean, in that day, frankly, how demeaning in that day. He had nothing to his name. Even what he had left on his body, by the time of his crucifixion, people were rolling dices for. Nothing to his name. That's not the poverty that counts. The poverty that counts is the spiritual poverty he suffered on the cross, bearing the weight of the wrath of our sins in his body, and his loving, precious father turning his face away and beating him to a pulp for our sins. 
And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. The cross is the opening up of the Fort Knox of Christ's richer blessings. He did it by sacrificing himself. Jesus could have said to the Father, how much should I give? That question was not up for debate. He came and gave it all. When we give all of ourselves to Christ, and, he, and we say, everything I have is yours, occupy my heart, rule my checkbook, the cross is magnified, the cross is glorified by some measure in our weak, frail, puny giving, Christ is glorified. Isn't that good? And others are blessed tangibly, and God is pleased. Your money's a chainsaw. It's very dangerous. Take it out of the hand of Jesus, and it will cut paths to glory. Take it out of your own hand. Lock it. Let's pray. Lord, we have been caused to be born in a, a very wealthy land, a beautiful land, a great land, a prosperous land. We have benefited from the Protestant work ethic. We have benefited from the blessings you have lavished upon this land. Who are we that we should be born here and not in Mongolia 200 years ago? Wow. Well, we're, we're those that in whom you have put treasures of grace and blessing. And you have entrusted much to us. And what is required of a steward is that he be found faithful. And so I pray from my own heart, from my brother's heart, that we would view our money, our wealth, our opportunities, our resources as chainsaws that taken from your hand and according to your instructions, you would use our lives, our wealth to cut paths of glory for your name's sake and for others and for blessing for this poor and broken and dying world. Save us from greed. Help us to confess it. Convict us of it. Make us good stewards. Give us the privilege of seeing the glory of money well used, of realizing we can never outgive God. Let, we'll put you to the test in that. Give us the courage to do that. Deliver us from the pride that we would think we are above living so extravagantly that we could be trusted with wealth. We can't be. Humble our hearts at that. Thank you for your glory and grace. Thank you for the cross, which puts away the guilt of our selfishness and greed. Thank you that we are washed and clean. Thank you that we belong to you, the King of Heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.